Hey, this is Pastor Zach from Judson Baptist Church. We have, of course, resumed our study of Spurgeon's uh, Catechism based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. This after about a year of uh, pause, uh, following another pause, you know, COVID stuff. But we're back now with uh, our lessons. And in the course of getting the podcast feed up to date, I realized that there were a few lessons uh, I didn't have all the files for. My computer hard drive crashed last November, and I had uh, still the crowd files, which is what I call a little micro that I put over uh, in the midst of where everyone's sitting so that I can make sure you can hear the questions and comments uh, from the class. Uh, and I have that, but I didn't have the the mic up by myself uh, on the podium at the front of the chapel. So it isn't going to be great quality here, but in the interest of continuity and covering the whole thing, uh, I went ahead and took those files and tried to clean up uh, my voice picked up by that uh, other microphone uh, and, and raised the volume so that you can understand it. Um, something about me and uh, my type A personality, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I knew we were missing if I knew we were missing two classes on the podcast feed. So uh, if if it's too hard to hear and it's annoying to you, you could skip this one um, and pick back up uh, with the ones from uh, October of 2021, where we're back to the, the normal setup. Uh, and I think that things are a little clearer. But if you can endure the low quality audio, here are the secret missing classes Undoubtedly, the other audio files were deleted from my computer by the Illuminati. So here is the gnosis that they don't want you to hear. Enjoy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this season. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together. And uh, we just pray that you would give us uh, a good time of study and uh, contemplation. And that, Lord, we would be uh, that much more familiar with your law, your word, and how it impacts us as, as Christians who are free in Christ. And Lord, we just pray that we would understand how we can uh, better honor you with our lives uh, just a little bit more today uh, from talking about these commandments. Uh, we thank you for the little baby in the back. And Lord, we thank you for uh, just your grace to us. And, and what a wonderful reminder these little ones are that you are a good God, that you love us, that you're the giver of all good gifts. Now uh, we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Hey, Susie, no speaking on tongues. It's the King's English here. We're back. All right. Let's get to question 54. What is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment? The reason annexed to the fifth commandment is... A promise of long life and prosperity, as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good, to all such as keep this commandment. Here is an old-timey sermon illustration. A certain farmer in England had an only son to whom he was greatly attached and never could think of chastising him for his thought faults. When he arrived at the age of twelve years... He bade adieu to his father's house and went with a band of gypsies. For nearly 20 years, he was never heard of. It happened, however, that the old man was under the necessity of taking a journey a considerable way with a large sum of money. He had to pass a wood, and as he went on, a man rushed from it, seized his horse, and demanded his money. The old man remonstrated with him. He would not hear, but again demanded his money. Most reluctantly, he gave it up. The robber, gazing at him, said, Do you know me? No, said the old man. I, you probably can see where this is going. <laughs> Don't you, do you know me? He repeated. No, I do not know you. Well, said the robber, I am your son. Gasp. And returning his money, added, Had you corrected me when young, I might have been a comfort to you now. Oh, jeez. But now I am a disgrace to you and a pest to society. <laughs> the things that kids say. Now, my son has actually reached the age of 12, and he's not here, so I don't know if he's with a band of gypsies. I, I think he's with Steve, so I think we're okay here. Um, that, that is kind of a, a little transition, I guess, from the keeping of the law to the why do you keep the law. It, it, it is a blessing to the child to honor the parents, just as it's a blessing to the parents to be honored. But with something like this, I think 
a big question comes in, how do we apply Old Testament promises that are to Israel now to the church? And I think the answer is um, selectively and very inconsistently. <laughs> if we're going to talk about how we actually do it. Uh, that, that, you know, everyone's got their Jeremiah 29, 11 bookmark, uh, but nobody's talking about uh, promises of judgment or destruction that may come up in uh, the, the Old Testament to Israel. Uh, how, how do you, as a general rule, tend to try and apply a promise for the people of Israel who were under the Old Covenant, now to us in the church. There must be some significance here, because in Ephesians 6, which we're going to get to in uh, probably about six weeks or a little more, uh, honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul makes a big deal out of it talking to a church. It may be that he's saying this is so significant that God applied a promise whether or not it still applies to you. He doesn't actually mention whether or not it now applies. But it's, there's something to it. So in general, what, what is your rule of thumb for applying some kind of Old Testament promise to us? I tend to try and see if the promise is repeated in the New Testament. Okay. Like the promise with the Fifth Commandment, it's repeated in the New Testament. Well, it's quoted in the New Testament. I don't know that's a reissue. But yeah, it certainly if something is reiterated in the New Testament, then the, the whole struggle with it just goes away, right? Because they can say, okay, this is something for the church. What if it's not? Um, I don't know if... This doesn't apply in every case, but in some cases you can attach something, if it's something attached to the ceremonial law that was given to Israel, I think that that is something that is not immediately applicable in a literal way that it, like it was then. Um, maybe you can draw some principles from it, but I don't think that we should expect those particular promises um, that are for that people in that time, in that place. And I can tell by the squintiness in your eyes that you're looking for Maybe a way to argue against No, I'm trying to look for a way for it to work. I'm trying to think of a, a, a promise that is tied to the ceremonial law. Well, maybe there's not a promise. I guess, hmm. Okay, well, yeah, maybe there's not a promise. Certainly, uh, for thinking about whether a law applies to us. Right. To say, is this part of a moral law which is rooted in the character of God, or is this part of a ceremonial law for a particular people uh, at a particular place, a particular time, under a particular covenant that is now obsolete? But, and also, of course, there are laws that apply to Israel as a nation. Right. And in that case, there are promises that apply for keeping, right? Remember, yeah. there, there is... Promises about living there and having possession of the land and, yeah. This one seems to kind of be one of those, Yeah, that's it? why it's kind of funny that it's reiterated in Ephesians, because he's talking to people who wouldn't be in that particular... At least it's quoted in Ephesians. Yeah. Yeah, he's talking to Gentiles. And I guess that there's an, there's an element of... Um, if, if everything in the Old Testament is a shadow and pointing toward Christ... We would never get more. Christ is fulfilling these things, then you should be able to see some sort of way that that promise would apply to the church through the lens of what Christ did. It might not be a literal understanding like you would have between God and his covenant people, but or his old, old covenant people. Yes, yes. So I think what we want to remember is that all of these promises are fulfilled in Christ. All the blessings and the curses are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, the curses being piled on his shoulders when he's on the cross. All of that stuff is fulfilled in Christ. And this is why it's not problematic when we read the Gospels and Jesus' parents flee Herod and his crazy murder spree to Egypt. Then Herod dies, and an angel's like, you can come on back now. And they come back, and we read, it, uh, and so it was fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son. And you say, hold on. You're doing a bad job with that text, Mr. Gospel writer. Or we say evangelist. 
history evangelist because that text is about the people of God being called out of Egypt. Egypt when? The Exodus. The Exodus, right? Well, if Jesus is the true Israel, and all these things are fulfilled in him, then yeah, you, you apply the promise through him to us. Meaning he has now called us out of Egypt, the spiritual Egypt, the slavery to sin. We have ultimate freedom. Something like this. So, so there was three, uh, a threefold promise given to Abraham in the Old Testament. That he would have land, he would have descendants, he would have a relationship of blessing. Uh, that at least his line would. Because initially, uh, the main concern is descendants, right? Because wifey here is 100 and I got nobody. So it, it begins with that. But, but now those things, as they come to us, no longer tied to physical uh, people and place and time and kingdom, human kingdom, coming to us have different uh, thrusts to them. Uh, we will see uh, more descendants than we can imagine via the gospel, right? Not people being born, but people being born again. The church will grow. Certainly the relationship of blessing is central to uh, the idea of the gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's how we go from, I mean, you already had a personal relationship with Jesus when you were dead in your sins. It can't get more personal than executioner and guilty. What we have now is that relationship of blessing. And the idea of descendants, relationship of blessing, land, all has to be taken into account what kind of kingdom we're dealing with now. It's not that you are in a particular locale flowing with milk and honey. This kingdom goes to the ends of the earth. What does it mean then that keeping father, uh, the fifth commandment, honoring our father and mother, uh, will help us to have a long life in the land and that it will go well with us. I don't know, 100%. I've heard good arguments for a number of idiosyncratic interpretations, and I think it's the kind of thing that if Paul doesn't define it, we should be a little bit careful in saying this is exactly what it means. I, I, I tend to think you, you take what he says for what he says. In quotes, honor your father and mother, in parentheses, this is the first commandment with a promise, in quotes, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He says one thing about this. It was so important that it was the first command with a promise. He doesn't say the promise applies to you like it did then. He doesn't say if or how the promise applies to you. But certainly, this command continues to apply to us. And it's the first command with a promise. And it's sort of the kind of thing that's self-fulfilling, right? It's its own reward. Uh, I was torn, which old-timey sermon illustration to, to share with you. I wish I would have read them both. I, I'll try to remember the other one. It was basically a guy was so nasty to his elderly father who lived with him that he said, uh, that the elderly father said, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving home. And, and so he went to his grandson, Tommy, even though it was old-timey, his name was Tommy. And he said, go get me a blanket that I can wrap around myself and go begging. And then the grandson was so horribly you know, upset about this. He went and he got a blanket, he was crying, and he went to his father and said, will you help me cut this in half? That way grandfather can use half of it now, and later you can use the other half when I put you out. And it made the father so uh, you know, broken and contrite that he went and, and, and repented. Uh, it's the sort of thing where the curse is almost built in. When people don't honor their mother and father, things fall apart. When people do honor their mother and father, things tend to, not always, but things tend to work better. Um, and, and so the long life in the land, it's tied to the land. And so we, we have to, quote unquote, and I don't like the term, but spiritualize it in some sense. Um, and even then, there was no guarantee that if you were righteous and honored your mother and father, you lived to 100. I mean, Jonathan honored his father even though he was a dirtbag, and he was cut down in battle as a young man. It's sad. It did, um, so here, here's the caveat given in the answer, as far as it shall serve for God's glory. Everyone's thinking, what does John Calvin say about this? And the answer is quite a bit, so let, you know, get comfortable. Calvin says in the Institutes, 
A promise is added by way of recommendation. The better to remind us how pleasing to God is the submission which is here required. Paul applies that stimulus to rouse us from our lethargy when he calls this the first, first commandment with promise. The promise contained in the first table not being specially appropriated to any one commandment, but extending to the whole law. Moreover, the sense in which the promise is to be taken is as follows. The Lord spoke to the Israelites specially of the land which he had promised them for an inheritance. If, then, the possession of the land was an earnest of the divine favor, we cannot wonder if the Lord was pleased to testify his favor by bestowing long life, as in this way they were able long to enjoy his kindness. The meaning, therefore, is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou may be able, during the course of a long life, to enter the possession of the land which is to be given thee in testimony of my favor. But as the whole earth is blessed to believers, we justly class the present life among a number of divine blessings. Whence this promise has, in like manner, reference to us also, inasmuch as the duration of the present life is a proof of the divine benevolence toward us. It is not promised to us, nor was it promised to the Jews, as if in itself it constituted happiness, but because it is an ordinary symbol of the divine favor to the pious. Wherefore, if anyone who is obedient to parents happens to be cut off before mature age, a thing which not infrequently happens, the Lord nevertheless adheres to his promise as steadily as when he bestows a hundred acres of land where he had only promised one. The whole lies in this. We must consider that long life is promised only insofar as it is a blessing from God, and that it is a blessing only insofar as it is a manifestation of divine favor. This, however, he testifies and truly manifests to his servants more richly and substantially by death. <laughs> so the idea here being that was the token of divine favor. And even now, I mean, we thank God for the long life of his saints. Uh, you know, we just buried Bill Enyart. He was old and full of years, as the Old Testament says. He lived a long, good life. And we, think, we say thank you, God, for that, that blessing. Um, but it's not a, a transactional type thing. Yeah, Roger. Um, could this promise... No, that's kind of far-fetched, but... As we were talking about the Fifth Commandment, we were also talking about the authorities, governings. Could this promise also apply to that? Because I know Jeremiah said, pray for the peace of the city that you live in. As it prospers, so shall you. No, certainly, if, if the commandment really does extend to uh, all who are in authority over us, and it, I mean, we believe it does, or, or all of our materials wouldn't say that we believe it does, uh, then yeah, the, the promise would have as well. So, I mean, you see how that plays out for someone like Korah and his cronies. Their life in the land is completely cut short in the wilderness, right? The ground sucks them in because they have been rebellious. Or the idea of the rebellious son that we talked about, where the law has built into it even a stoning of, of a rebellious son who will abuse his parents and that sort of thing, that the community comes in and, and actually um, takes charge there. So, yeah, sure. Uh, the, the long life would be contingent on not just uh, honoring mother and father, but submitting to all of the proper authorities. Sure. I'm trying to decide whether to dip our toes in the longer catechisms, three questions about our uh, duty toward superiors, toward inferiors, and toward equals, or just to move on to the Sixth Commandment. I don't know. That part interested me. I don't right. know if anybody else was interested in it. Well, there's a lot of text we can look up if we want to. <laughs> and who doesn't? And who doesn't love looking up new texts? I like it. I'll get there first. A little shot of pride. All right, the Westminster Longer Catechism, number one twenty nine, one thirty, and one thirty one, and one thirty two starts getting into um, how this plays out real specifically. So one twenty nine says, "What is required of superiors toward their inferiors?" Uh, the very notion of this, I think, maybe implies a view of the world that we don't share, but I think we could just tweak it a little and say people in authority toward those over whom they are in authority. Um, 
and, and maintain both the idea of equality and the idea of uh, relationships here that require some submission. Answer. It was required of superiors according to that power that they received from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and to preserve that authority which God hath put upon them. That's something. Uh, I think that there's always this tendency people have toward wanting to rise up in, in the ranks and be an authority and have, you know, as many as four people <laughs> directly reporting to them. And then you get there and, and you go, the more authority you have, really the more, you know, the blowback comes your way. And uh, that's a scriptural idea, that, that leadership means taking the, the hit for the people below you, um, not throwing them under the bus. That's godly leadership. It means providing for them, not them providing for you. Uh, and godly leadership is a, a pretty heavy mantle. And, I mean, the way it breaks it up into these kind of collections of words, um, pray for and bless and love. That's the beginning. That's kind of the, the overarching umbrella. If you have anyone who is, in a relational sense, the inferior in the relationship, so you're a boss, you're a, you're a parent, you're, a, um, uh, you're someone in authority in the sense of you're a I mean, good grief, you're a, a, a body or not a bodyguard. What do you call it? A pool, a lifeguard, um, or a bodyguard. <laughs> you know that that the person that you're in authority over, love them, pray for them, and bless them. First and foremost, and, and it seems like, no, 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 the reason that you kind of rise up and become prominent is so that all the masses will love you and bless you, right? And so everyone sees you say, I pray for you every day. That's getting this, we've got to remember, that, that makes sense with human relationships, but the kingdom of God's upside down. The first is the last, the greatest is the, the least, and the one who is in authority, in fact, I think this is why Baptist polity works so well, uh, because we put not the Pope or the Archbishop or the Metropolitan at the top and go like this in a pyramid, but we put the congregation at the top and it goes the other direction uh, so that a pastor is serving his congregation, not this notion of you kind of exist to provide your pastor with status and employment and whatever else you can give. Um, same thing going then to the denomination, right? This group of people, this, um, now parents were lifelong, um, American Baptists, not lifelong, but, uh, my lifelong American Baptists, and, and one of them said something recently about, they aren't anymore, they, they go to a Wesleyan church, and one of them said, uh, but isn't your boss really like Brian Johnson, the, the executive minister? And he's like, no, come on! I didn't go, like give them a big long screed about it, but because you were honoring them, that's because I was honoring them, and that would have been super boring. Um, <laughs> but no, no, of course not. In fact, in a sense, we're his boss, just like you're my boss. And so, so I think that, that in our, our Baptist polity is even built in kind of a reminder of this. And when you think about your relationship to people that you're in authority over, does it look like that? And, and I mean. You can take that too far uh, for Sam to go home and say, all right, I gotta remember, <laughs> Levi and Susanna are my boss. They say jump, I say how high. That's a great way to wind up with them running off to join a band of gypsies. Uh, but to love them, bless them, and pray for them, to provide them with all that they need, to instruct, counsel, and admonish, you gotta countenance and discountenance, right? <laughs> Whatever that means. Uh, so that is the first. Anyone have any thoughts on that? That's, that's tough stuff, I think. Um, so you're saying at, with great power comes great responsibility. Oi. If that helps. 
house. I don't know why, but I'm quoting Uncle Ben Singer right there. Uh, number 130, the next one. What are the sins of superiors? Here we go. The sins of superiors are, besides the neglect of the duties required of them, one, the inordinate seeking of themselves, their own glory, ease, profit, or pleasure. I think that's just so rampant in the system that Oh, we yeah. Have. You get a little power, and yeah, you want to yeah. leverage it. Sure. Um, commanding of things unlawful or not in the power of inferiors to perform. Mm. That's also very common, I think. I've had some bosses that like to do that. Um, the second part, not so much the first. Counseling, encouraging, or favoring them in that which is evil. And I think that's a, a you know a real double curse upon us when we when we begin to do that. Um, remember, I, I think Jesus' whole millstone thing kind of tips his hand on how he feels, where you have a responsibility to lead someone, and instead of leading them down a path to righteousness, you lead them towards sin, uh, and then uh, dissuading, discouraging, or again discountenancing them in that which is good, correcting them unduly. Careless, exposing or leading them to wrong, temptation, and danger, provoking them to wrath, or any way dishonoring themselves or lessening their authority by an unjust, indiscreet, rigorous, or remiss behavior. That's, again, you know, when you hit an election year and you start thinking about all the scandals that come out about everybody from every corner of everything, and you have to wonder if somebody comes into power with this heart, how long can they keep it before, you know, it, they, they kind of get corrupted by the cream and start saying, well, everyone does it this way, just a little, just a little more. Uh, as Christians, we have to be people who, who continue on this path. Uh, and that's the, you're, you're keeping the fifth commandment, even when it seems like, no, I'm not. My parents aren't involved at all. Uh, yeah, you are. Uh, what are the duties of equals? The duties of equals, this one's way shorter, are to regard the dignity and worth of each other in giving honor to one another, I'm sorry, to, in giving honor to one before another, and to rejoice in each other, in each other's gifts and advancement as their own. And they not invented the apostrophe yet? Each other's? <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll read it again. Regard the dignity of, and worth of each other in giving honor to go one before another, and to rejoice in each other's gifts and advancement as their own. Uh, what's, that, what's that German word for like liking somebody's misfortune? Schadenfreude. Say again? Schadenfreude. Must be my German background. That kind of does it for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, Schadenfreude. That's my life if you're listening probably, online. Probably um, not pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> probably not. It's probably much violenter sounding. Um, <laughs> But, you know, even you, you, you bump into ministers admitting to this kind of thing. That church isn't doing great, and I think, well, hey, we're doing better than them, and I feel a little good. And then you feel terrible because you felt a little good. Um, you know, when your, your colleague has something great happen, and your first thought is like, oh, that should have been me. That person doesn't deserve Rather to rejoice with them. To rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's something that we are commanded to do for one another. And what are the sins of equals? The sins of equals are, besides the neglect of the duties required, the undervaluing of the worth, envying the gifts, grieving at the advancement of prosperity one of another, and usurping preeminence over one another. All of that stuff is good grief. That's like every TV show. <laughs> we yeah. remove that. I mean, that's, that's life almost, right? Not in the church it shouldn't be. We should be, and, and, and you know, churches often do this well. I don't want to suggest that this is, you know, like a, a rare thing. Rejoicing when someone, you know, this person just got a great job, and we're all happy, and we're praising God. This person just became a grandma. Uh, you know, we're all excited, and, and you know, th this kind of thing does mark the church largely, I think the equals thing is easier in my mind. Um, if you're kind of on equal footing with someone and we're all together sort of going through life, those who are in authority over you, it's easier to kind of backseat grouse and, and stuff. 
Uh, I'm going to have to open up Bible Work 7 here to read the, the ones about inferiors, unless you don't care. Well, Is anyone here like, I'm not anyone's inferior, so don't bother? <laughs> Um, but I wanted to say something about the, the equals thing. I think that it, it does, it is easier, but I think that um, there are all sorts of ways that we um, either overtly or maybe less overtly tell ourselves that some people are not as equal as others. You know, you have to start with the basis of actually believing that Everybody is made in the image of God, and everybody is equal on that account. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, plus, I, I think it helps that when you're out in the world, you have superiors, but when everyone comes into the church, they're equal there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, ideally. Yeah. Certainly James warns against, we mentioned that last week, James warns against saying, okay, this person's rich. You know, they could, they could bankrupt the church by leaving, so everyone cater to them. Right. Seat up front, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that's that's something that shouldn't happen. And I'll tell you what, we've had some rich people here, and the the beautiful thing is, if they have the attitude, at least we have some people who are richer than I'll ever be. Um, you know, if they have the attitude coming in of, I'm here to serve, it makes it very easy, and it, and, it, and it's just a blessing to everyone. Then, um, okay, so here is the inferiors. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks, <laughs> and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. That last part is interesting. Bearing with their infirmities because that's where it becomes difficult, I think. That's where everybody starts complaining. Yeah. Yeah. Bearing with their infirmities and covering yeah. them in love. That Those two being, instead of covering you with... Uh, like mockery, yeah. I will cover you with love and bear with you. Um, I think all of these have their, their challenges if we start thinking about, I mean, at this time of year, I think a lot of people especially are thinking of you know, political uh, relationships, and it's, it's more vicious than ever, right? I mean, the, the, the way that we speak about people, it's, it's very unchristian, I think, and we all have the tendency to do it. Um, and there are legitimate complaints that we have. Um, here, here's the question, or the, uh, the, the list again. Do reverence in the heart. And again, this is right from the scriptures. To everyone do, you know, uh, what, what he is due. If, if respect, respect, reverence, reverence. Um, in heart, word, and behavior. Word and behavior. Prayer and thanksgiving for them. You notice that Praying for someone who is your enemy helps you to not hold on to hostility and, and uh, hatred and anger. It's easy when that person's humanized, when they're kind of dehumanized by becoming a caricature, a cartoon, and a cardboard cutout. We have to remember that due reverence is probably best uh, maintained and, and, and built up by praying for and giving thanks for that in them which is, which is good. Imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, submission to their corrections. Well, and the interesting thing about the lawful stuff is that in our society we can all decide, no, we've decided this is not lawful anymore, or this is. So it's not like it's coming from uh, on high, exactly. Or do you read this as lawful according to God's word. As long as I can submit to that right. without okay. breaking God's law. I, that, that seems to be the context to me, but, but okay. maybe not. The one that's the um, submission to their correction seems like the one as a parent <laughs> that as someone, as an inferior to someone else, I can hear it in all constructive 
But if, as a child hearing it from a parent, yeah. they go, you just don't know. Yeah. You know, they just, yeah. it's different times now. Or, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. but as a superior, how I'm supposed to, you know, do the love them, counsel, admonish. What's lovely is when you read the rest of Exodus, it's clear that this law wasn't given and first lived out in a setting without any of those complications. Right. If anything, they had more of that than we do, and yet the law was there, and the promise was there, and, and it was all in place. Um, and, and, you know, you think about the long game with parenting, right? Um, I'm sure there were times when Brett, young Brett, thought you guys were stupid and you don't know anything because <laughs> blah blah. I want to go do this and you're the one you won't let me and you're the worst. And no, you know. So I mean, you, you you say you're you're planting seeds and you're being patient and you're trusting that that this way that God gave us will work. You train up a child in the way that he will go. Um, you know. So like the momentary little clashes, I had those with my parents for sure. Um, and I'm sure there were times that my Parents were like that. Pastor? I hope not. <laughs> Probably not. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but it, you know, it's Mark Twain, right? My my parents knew nothing, or my father knew nothing when I was is it sixteen? By the time I was twenty one, I was surprised how much he had learned. You know, I think this also applies. Like, if a police officer pulls you over, and then you start arguing with him, instead of accepting that you maybe you did break the law and he had to. Pull you over and give you a ticket. That is a dude. Don't talk about that, Roger. What are you doing? That convicts me. I remember uh, reading a little book. I, I I had to fight a ticket because I really was given it improperly. But I, I bought a book on eBay. This was a long time ago. Paper books on eBay was a thing. And uh, we were newly married. So this was 20 years ago almost. And as I was reading the book, it also had what to say to the cop when you get pulled over next time. Never admit to anything. Ask to see the radar. All this stuff. Ask Even to see the you radar. might have been going 100 miles an hour. Don't admit to anything. And then you read this, and it says, you know, submit yourself to their their proper correction. Um, I think the 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 Jesus thing to do is, yeah, you say, I was when they say you have any idea how fast you were going. I do. How fast do you think I was going? <laughs> You know, but but yeah, I'm probably gonna get a ticket here unless you show me some grace. And I don't know about you guys, but I find that that posture has gotten me a warning more times than the "Hey, I pay your salary" ever could. <laughs> One more here. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places in their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Wow. Time to get off Twitter. <laughs> right. Now, I am wide open to anyone saying, yeah, you're just reading a document written by these guys a few hundred years ago. That's not the Bible. Um, you know, somebody make an argument against this. We can read all the texts. There's ten proof texts in that one. Uh, and, you know, nine times out of ten with these proof texts in the, the catechism as we have it, you go, yep, that's dead on. One out of ten, you're like, that has nothing whatever to do with what you're saying. Um, but I think we can all agree, ideally, this is how things look. God has established authorities, earthly authorities, because that's the first use of the law. If he doesn't, we all go nuts. Even, even uh, believers, but especially unbelievers, are going to give in to the, the sin nature that's at the wheel. And, I mean, look how quickly the first sin of taking a bite of a fruit becomes murder in the beginning of Genesis. I mean, we will devolve and descend into that unless these earthly authorities hold us back from giving in entirely because of earthly consequences. This is vital, and as Christians, we ought to say, yeah, we submit to this, we submit to this is the way that God has set things up, and I think we have, I, I think just as the society as a whole has drifted toward a default contempt, mm -hmm. 
in many ways, so has the church. We haven't done a, a break against that at all. Um, so we've been talking about like examples where that is played out, like David and Saul, and like uh, Daniel and um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what about somebody like um, Elijah, who had nothing con but contempt for his ruling authority, and like the way he mocked? You know, that's kind of different. Well. I think we get into, there's a number of things there. First and foremost. I mean, these were evil rulers. Yeah, so it's Nero and you're trying right. to honor him. Right, yeah. Uh, first and foremost, I think the, you have to remember this is in, this is under national Israel. When ideally it is still effectively a theocracy, but with a human kind of intermediary there mm -hmm. when things are going well ruling in, in, uh, visibly for God as God would rule. Um, so there's that. So when um, in Elijah's situation, what happens is you get uh, Omri's son, Ahab, so evil begetting evil, and him turning to this Sidonian named anybody? Anybody? Jezebel. Jezebel, um, who is just about as wicked as anyone can be. And together they wick it all up and decide <laughs> we're going to persecute the prophets. They're all wiped out except a hundred that um, Obadiah hides in a cave, right? And then uh, God says specifically to Elijah, you know, you're going to you tell him it's not going to rain. It's, it's not going to rain for until you say it will. He leaves for three and a half years. He comes back. And when he gets back, he's on a mission from God. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he is just a jerk. Mm-hmm. He is on a mission to make a public spectacle of these wicked and impotent pagan gods. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing what God told him. The prophet is the covenant enforcement police force, essentially. Right. So we're not all prophets Testament. in that sense. So right. we, we don't right. have so, that. Although to speak prophetically is something. Right. And but I you think can that do that without mocking people. Right. I, I, it seems like in most situations you could. Um, in fact, it seems like, I mean, who's, who's a prophetic voice in American history? Preacher? Preacher? Not in general, yeah, specifically. Specific. Well, like Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King comes to mind immediately. That worked very, very well in retrospect. I bet in the moment it was very difficult to say, submit to authorities sicking dogs on you because you're trying to walk across a bridge right. and shooting with the hoses. But at the same time, you say following Jesus, you, uh, you know, turn the other cheek and, and stuff where in the moment it must have, gosh, I don't want to ask how old people are, but I know there's some people here must remember aspects of the civil rights movement, right? Does it seem doomed to fail? Probably to some people at some times. Yeah. Um, and yet progress was made. And I mean, not total progress, but progress. And you say, okay, that's, a, that's a, probably the, the best example I can think of is a very prophetic, the church saying, we have to be the conscience of a society that has hardened theirs completely. And there's that prophetic voice. Do you feel like that's missing now? Like it feels like there's less of a feeling of we're going to be a conscience and we're, we're doing this out of love and it's more just we're arguing about stuff. Uh. You know? Probably. I don't know. I mean, certainly there was always argument. Whenever. Yeah. I mean, you look at abolitionism, you look at, I mean, even like yeah. stuff, you know, uh, child labor and stuff in England, there was a big, that came out of the church, right? Let's stop this. Let's, you're going to lose money, but we're going to insist that you stop it. And pushing back against people who were in power and in authority. Um, but getting back to Elijah. So there's that, there's the, the national aspect, there's the prophetic aspect. And then there's even in these answers, which seem so far into like idealist land and so disconnected from reality in some ways, you actually have um, as you know, you, what do you have to submit to and thank God for? These things that you can lawfully obey. Mm -hmm. Well, you cannot lawfully obey, bow down to the statue, you cannot lawfully obey, um, worship Baal, uh, a. a Essentially, demon. Uh, I mean, you know where the word Beelzebub comes from? 
That Al Zebub means the Lord, uh, the husband, the Lord, the master of the flies. Uh, and is a, a, a heathen god, a, a, a demon, uh, we would believe. So you can't do that. So you have him in a very unique position of God sent me here to send, set this right. And at the end, what, is, what happens to 450 prophets of Baal? Anyone remember? Yeah, they all died. Yeah. In fact, I believe his specific words are, don't let one of them get away. <laughs> so we have, I think, where the general um, comportment of ordinary people is not what's in view. It's a specific mm -hmm. job given to this guy by God, specifically by revelation. Um, and, you know, I have... And this brings us to the idea of satire, I think, and, and kind of joking about, I mean, good grief, has, has SNL was so bad for so long, and now when they bring in Jim Carrey and Alec Baldwin doing these debates and stuff, it's funny again. Um, and then you watch that and go, should I even laugh at that when I read this stuff? Uh, but I have, because I've written satire about church stuff, often appealed to, well, I mean, remember what Elijah said, your God is probably asleep or uh, pooping uh, or, you know, it, it, I mean, that's the euphemism he uses. Uh, he's, he's, you know, give him a while. He'll come, he'll get up. He'll kind of rub the sleep out of his eyes and come around. Keep shouting, shout louder, cut yourselves more. And, and, or, or you point to uh, Paul uh, saying that he wishes his enemies would go all the way in their insistence on, on circumcision and emasculate themselves. In that situation, he's talking to equals, uh, or about them. Uh, in this situation with uh, Elijah, he's talking to what, what has been set over him as an authority, but an invalid authority. Mm -hmm. All the while, you go, okay, if I determine it's an invalid authority, does that right. free me right. to be vicious with my words like this? So what, what are your thoughts on something like satire or parody or, I mean... This has been part of the fabric of how America kind of does this stuff. And it's part of what you're signing up for if you're running for office or even, even you know, running for sheriff in a small town. If they've got a newspaper, it's probably going to be a, you know, some kind of political cartoon about you or some kind of op-ed. Does this cross the line or what? Yeah, I don't know. This kind of reminds me of one of those sermons I listened to where Ananias, the high priest at that time, Paul says to him, oh, I didn't know you were the high priest. Ah, you've been listening to my sermons. Yeah, yeah, so when, when he speaks ill of the high priest, and then they say, what, do you speak to the high priest like that? And there's two ways to take that. Either he really didn't know, because he'd been off, you know, in the wilderness getting his gospel, and there'd been a rollover. But, I mean, this is somebody, even if it was the next in line for the high priest, right? I mean, he spent so much time in the inner circle, he would know. So what he's saying is, I didn't realize you're the high priest. You're not acting like the high priest. You're acting like, you know, a thug. Uh, Jesus uh, even gets a little catty in his trial. Uh, you know, that's a horrible way to put it. Uh, Jesus even, uh, he, he stands up for himself in a way that's a little sarcastic. You know, um, we have to, I think remember that, that being human means interacting in ways that are, I guess i got to be careful because Jesus <laughs> being sinless, but inter interacting not in a vacuum and not, and not having all the time in the world to craft every thought. Um, any, any other thoughts on, I mean, when you, when you see a real cutting impression of, and sometimes that's just all in good fun, sometimes it's meant to make a point. Sometimes it's just meant to to be a mockery. As Christians, is this the kind of stuff also that we have to avoid? Is it bad for us spiritually? If your friend in the break room is like, hey, watch this, I do a great impression of our boss. And uh, See, I feel like that's a worse thing than doing an impression of a public figure. Really? I don't know why. Because what if you work for Sam Bernstein as a public figure? <laughs> Sam Bernstein. I do a pretty good impression of him. <laughs> I would say, what's your heart when you're doing when you're doing that? Are you doing it just to be a jerk? Are you doing it just to be funny? But it can also or, start out funny, and then mm -hmm. if you're just constantly in the break room and yeah, people, I find that a lot at work. A lot of people, you know, 
for a week your lunch. And when you're surrounded by it, you know, it's funny at first, but then, you know, maybe somebody else comes in and really does have, you know, harsh feelings against this person that they're, you know, you start talking about stuff and you're listening to all of it and then you start developing an opinion about this person or whatever and because you're hearing what other people are saying right. and talking. Yeah, I've had experiences so. where, like, um, somebody, somebody new at work or whatever where you hear one person's opinion of that person and you're like, why did you say that to me? Like, why not? Yeah. Like, that changes your opinion. It and it may not even be true. Right. But like, why yeah. are they imposing yeah. that on you when you just, like, met this person, you know? I think you have to be careful that we're not opening doors for malice, or that. gossip, yeah. uh, things that are clearly not right for Christians to take part in. Yeah. Uh, and kind of know know your audience or who you're talking to, know your your limits, and know when you're going to. You know, we've all seen that that moment where something like that can turn. Yeah. And even if you're talking about a parent to a yeah. sibling, or talking or talking about a fellow church member, it can go from "Isn't that a cute foible?" to "Wow, what a disaster that person is!" Pretty quick if we're not careful. Well, and you can you can change your own mind about somebody that way. Where like if you start telling a story about someone and then it just evolves into complaining about and you mm -hmm. wouldn't have thought all of those things unless you had started talking, you know, and then you can develop bitterness toward this person who if you hadn't like listed out all their faults, you probably would be fine with. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. It's time to go, it's past time to go. Um, I had started to rely on the arrival of people for the Swahili <laughs> service, but uh, um, they are on, how you say, African time, and they will get here when they get here. So. Okay, yeah, I gotta get it. Get this thing um, running. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. Thank you for these things that are, they challenge us. And, and Lord, as we think about people in authority over us, people over whom we're in authority, and people who are. Uh, we're just rubbing elbows with, Lord, we pray that we would be more like Jesus than we have in the past when dealing with them. That we would show respect where respect is due, that we would uh, bear with people, that we would give thanks for people when we are tempted to eviscerate them, and Lord, that we would find something good in them that we can emulate. Uh, we want to be those people, Lord, and we ask that you would uh, just help us take a step in, in that direction uh, each day this week, and, and that, Lord, we could be inspired by your, we, we could be thankful for your word and praise you for your law, uh, and, and, Lord, not find it to be a heavy burden, but something that frees us, something that comes with a promise. And, Lord, uh, we do thank you uh, that those promises in Christ are all yes and amen. Uh, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Bye, Sean.